What we're going to do here is a bit of a, um, what I refer to as stop the tape, even though I'm dating myself by, by calling it a tape, because uh, tape has nothing to do with it. It's this, this new interwebs technology. Um, um, so uh, this is a, what we're going to talk about today is, is uh, actually, I'm not going to tell you what we're going to talk about today. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but what we're going to do is listen to uh, one of our favorite, I don't know, conservatives ask a question of a Muslim. And what we're going to do as we go along, we're going to stop, um, stop the tape, basically, and we're going to discuss um, what they have to say. We're going to kind of analyze it a little bit. Because one of the things that we do, and this goes back to the first class that we taught uh, in late May, is that as Christians or as, as human beings, we tend to think critically about, I don't know, things like science or economics or um, politics or whatever, but we don't think critically about religion. We don't think critically about God. And so what I want to do here is I want to apply some of our critical thinking skills and what we know about the Bible, what we know to be true, to what it is that we hear kind of on a daily basis. This also is, I think, very beneficial from an apologetics perspective, and apologetics being the defense of the, of the faith when we're talking to nonbelievers. Okay? Cool. All right, so we're still working out the technology of uh, stopping and starting, so um, th this may not go well in the beginning. Let's see what happens. So, oh, we can't hear it. One moment. So, why do you think the figure of Christ is central both to the Muslim faith and can you the Christian hear that back faith? There? And what do you think that says? Yep. Okay. Uh, can you hear it, Linda? Okay, can, can you uh, up it a bit more? Okay. Why do you think the figure of Christ is central both to the Muslim faith and the Christian faith? And what do you think that says about what we share in common? Because I really don't understand that. It's a Why do you think the figure of Christ is central? I think you're going to gonna have to uh, stop and start it. Um, yeah, okay. So, all right, go ahead. Why do you think the figure of Christ is central both to the Muslim faith and the Christian faith? And what do you think that says about what we share in common? Because I really okay. don't understand that. It's a mystery to me. Okay. Yes, Go ahead and I stop it. That. Okay. So what was the question? I'm sorry? Yeah. Yeah. So why is Christ so central to both Muslims and Christians? And so it's, he's something that, quote, unquote, we, you know, we have in common. Okay, now analyze that for me. Think, think about it. Is what he's saying, is what he's saying true? No. no? Okay, why not? What's... I don't think Christ is a central figure in Islam. He's, he's mentioned in Islam, but he's not mentioned. Uh, who he truly is is not represented in Islam. Okay. Right, okay, good. They, they don't believe he's, he's the son of God. They don't believe he's God. Right. So he can't be central if he's not the son of God and God. Right. A absolutely. So, is um, Christ the founder of our religion, of our, or is he the object of our worship? Yeah. Both, right? He he brought it in, you know, um, uh, Christianity in with with his with his incarnation. 
Uh, but at the same time, he's the object of our worship. And that's something that we have to bear in mind. We have nothing in common when it comes to Christ, uh, nothing in common with the Muslims when it, it comes to Christ. Okay, go ahead. First of all, Jesus Christ existed, which in the modern age is worth noting, right? Muslims actually, be, Muslims are the only other major world religion who believe in uh, Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the prophet. Okay, so now what did he just say? He said Muslims believe, first of all, that Jesus existed, that he is the Messiah, that he is the prophet, which is unique in all of the major religions of the world. No other major religion in the world believes that Jesus is the Messiah slash the prophet. Analyze that for me. Well, you said aside from Christianity. Well, aside from Christianity, okay. Well, I don't think they truly believe that he was the Messiah. Okay, well, that's great. So they define the Messiah as something else, don't they? Just like everything else. They, see, Muslims take the Old Testament and they, they inject it with completely different corrupted meaning. And, and we're not going to get into all of that right now, but when, when a Muslim talks about the Old Testament, they're talking about something that is radically alien to anything that you and I would know. Okay? It's, it's a completely uh, different kind of, you know, cor corrupted meaning. Um, the second thing is, is what do you think about this idea that in terms of the Messiah, Jesus is the only, or I'm sorry, Islam is the only other religion besides Christianity, major religion, where Jesus is seen as the Messiah. What do you think about that? Well, what are the other major religions? You have Christianity, right? Clearly. Islam, clearly. Judaism. Ju Judaism. Now, what's the problem with Judaism? Right, so they have the concept of a Messiah, but the whole problem with the Jews is that they reject their Messiah, okay? What's another major religion? Mormons, okay? Well, actually, they allegedly hold Jesus in high regard as well, right? But he doesn't really, he's not going to really count them as a different religion, because why? He's going to include them as a part of Christianity, because they name Christ, corrupt, you know, they corrupt it when they do, but because they name Christ, they're going to um, uh, group him in, the Mormons in, with Christianity. But they are not. They are a cult. They worship a created being. Okay, yes, ma'am? So, I guess I would take a part with the Messiah. Okay. I think, that's, I think sometimes yep. they use these words, and you just assume everybody means the same thing when they use that word. Yep. Absolutely. So, um, so she, uh, uh, Jenny just said something about um, what do you mean by Messiah? And in reality, when we're, we're talking to people, when we're um, evangelizing, when we're um, performing apologetics, we talk to somebody and we say, do you believe in God? Guess what? Even that is an almost nonsensical question now. Because the first thing you have to do is understand what do you mean by God? So it's not just what do you mean by Messiah, what do you mean by God? Because um, there's all sorts of, do you believe in the, the pantheon of God, of the uh, gods of the Hindus? Do you believe um, in pantheism? Do you believe in, you know, w what is God? So that's a, that's a great point as well, okay? Um, 
But if we're going through the major religions, Hinduism would be another religion, right? Well, they're not going to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah because they don't have the concept of Messiah. You know, Buddhism, do you even count them as a religion? They're more of a philosophy. But guess what? Hinduism and Buddhism both hold Jesus. They say he was a great moral teacher. In reality, everybody does something with Jesus. Christianity worships him. Everybody else thinks that they hold him in high regard, but in reality, they're insulting who he is. Okay? Does it make sense so far? I know we're just we're blowing through this, but okay, go ahead. We believe in Jesus Christ, we believe in his miracles, that he cured the blind with God's permission, that he raised the dead with God's permission, that he cured the leper with God's permission. We believe that he was one of the mightiest human beings that have ever lived on the earth. Okay. He's one of the mightiest human beings. We believe in his miracles. He did all these things with God's permission. Hey, um, you know, earth to, to Muslim guy, he is God. Okay? Uh, there is, an, a, to a certain extent, he did things with the father under the father. He was given authority by the father. Okay? So there is a sense where this God's permission thing might be relevant, but in a different way than what he's thinking. Okay? So... Um, so the point here is that whether they're Mormons or they're Muslims or whoever, everybody wants to gloss over the differences that we have between the one true God worshiped through Jesus Christ and everything else. Everybody tries to gloss over our differences. Everybody, um, religious people, quote-unquote, kind of want us on their team, so to speak, right? And when they, they talk to us, they try to say, oh, you and I, we, we're not that different. In reality, there are worlds, we are worlds apart because our God and their God is radically different, okay? Ours is the one true, and I hate to sound like that, but it's, it's true. He, he is the one true God, okay? Now, why do you think? Here we go. Now, as we continue this, we're going to talk about um, Trinitarianism for the next three weeks. And then um, I'll be actually gone for three weeks, and Mike Garrett is going to come in and talk about the attributes of God um, for, for three weeks, right? Uh, I think both of these sections of the study are going to be, going to be really good, really profitable. Um, normally what you do is you flip that. You say, you begin with the attributes of God, and then at the end of the attributes of God, you kind of go, oh, but yeah, by the way, you know, Trinity is important too, okay? Um, but what we, we're going to do here is we're going to flip that around. We're going to talk about Trinitarianism first, and then as you begin to study the attributes, you need to think about the attributes in context of, of the Trinity. Does that make sense? Okay, hope everybody's still with me, all right? Cool, let's pray and we'll get, we'll get going. Father, thank you for this morning. Um, thank you for the time to come together and, and to, uh, to get to know you, um, to study who you are and your Trinitarian nature. Um, this can be an intimidating topic, Father. Um, anytime we, 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 we try to understand, um, understand you in any way, it, it's, it's, it's intimidating. But be with us, Father. We know that we can know you truly. We just can't know you um, exhaustively. And just help us to, um, to be able to glean truth and to um, just remove any 
anything that's incorrect or false, uh, just remove those from our minds, Father. Um, we love you. We trust you. Just help us to glorify you in everything that we do. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I thought that was going to be five minutes. It ended up being 15. Sorry. So good morning. So let's go back. Do we worship the same God as the, as the Muslims? No. Okay. Now, they'll say, well, he's the creator God. And we'll say, okay, yeah, it, you know, God, um, the God of Christianity created everything. But the moment that you point to the cross and say, did your, first of all, did your God have a son? No, that's blasphemy. And number two, um, did your God die on a cross? No, that would be blasphemy as well. Game's over. Conversation's over because you do not worship the same God as the Muslims. Okay? You worship the same God as the Mormon. Yes, sir? I would say that there would be a God that he's not just. Right. So he, even though he forgives, he doesn't actually take care of the pain that's for that sin. Okay. That, that's a great point. Um, so uh, we can talk about that for a second. So um, Chad just said that their God is not just because he will forgive sin, but he doesn't take care of payment. And that, that is a key to Christianity, isn't it? Okay. Um, another attribute, because justice, the justice of God is an attribute of God. It's something about God where he would not be God if he wasn't just. It's a critical element or um, uh, aspect of, of who he is. Okay. Think about love for a minute. Let's take another one. Love. Everybody likes to talk about love. Okay. Can the Muslim, in First John chapter 4, it says, God is love. Well, can the Muslim God be love? No, he actually can't. Why? Because love, uh, for love to happen, a lover needs a beloved, Right? Well, what happened before the creation of the world? In Islam, there was Allah, but there was no beloved. He was the only entity that existed. In Christianity, there was Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing eternally. The Father loved the Son for all eternity. The Father, it, God, you can say that God is love because it is a part of the fabric of his being and always has been and always will be, even without a creation. Allah cannot be love because he could not, he could not be love. Now, I suppose he's capable of love, but he could not be love because he could not love without creation. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. So good, good point, Chad. Um, Mormons, I'll just say, no, they, they worship a created being, and the more you get into um, that particular religion, it, it, it gets wonky real fast. Um, do we worship the same God as the Jehovah's Witnesses? No? Basically, yeah, so they, they worship a 
one person God too, don't they? They, they see the Father as being God. They see the Son as a created being. And they don't even see the Holy Spirit as a person. They think he's a force, kind of like electricity or something. Um, so no, they, their idea of what God is and who God is, is is different than ours, completely different. Do we worship the same God as the Jews? That's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, I, I'd say we do, but they have an incomplete view of him. They've denied much of what, um, what has been uh, revealed about him. Okay, Just like they deny Jesus as the Messiah, they deny the Trinitarian nature of God, which was revealed in the, in the New Testament. Okay. All right, so let's talk about Trinitarianism. All right, so just throw some stuff out here, okay? Um, let's have a conversation. What comes to mind when you think of the Trinity? The Great Commission. You want to drill down on that just a little, real quick? Okay, great. Good. What else? Yes, ma'am. Okay, fellowship with each other. Okay. Um, three persons in eternal loving fellowship. Okay, good. Good. Anything else? Okay, no. What's that? Hard to understand, Hard to understand. yes. Intimidating, yes. But we're going to try to um, knock some of that intimidation off. We don't want to knock the majesty off. We just want to knock the intimidation off. Okay. Creation account. What's that? Creation accounts? Our image, okay. You're hitting on some stuff, some good stuff that we're going to be talking about here in a little bit. Yeah. I actually like it when people steal my thunder. It means that you're, uh, you're, in, you're in the game, so that's cool. So is the doctrine of the Trinity a bolt-on to Christian belief, or is it essential? Okay, we're all saying essential, but are you, um, are you comfortable articulating the doctrine? Is anybody comfortable articulating it? If you raise your hand. Yeah? Okay, Tom is comfortable articulating the doctrine of the, coven, uh, of the, uh, the Trinity. Okay, <laughs> let's hear what you got. There is one God. There is one God. God exists eternally as three persons. Yeah. And all three persons are divine. All three persons are eternally and completely God. Excellent. Good job, Tom. Good. Yep. So we're, <laughs> we're going to get back into that here in a few minutes. So, so if you're not, so if we so if we think it's a bolt on, or if we don't think it's a bolt on, if it's essential. But at the same time, we have trouble articulating it. Then how in the world are we going to defend it? When we talk to a Muslim, when we talk to a oneness Pentecostal, when we talk to um, anybody, it's just or some seeker that's just going, what is this three and one thing that you guys keep talking about? Okay. So here's the thing: we can take all the philosophy and move that out of the way. We can take um, you know, we can just forget about all of that. We can take all of this academic stuff and we can put that to the side. And what we can do is just remember three biblical principles, which Tom Pearson just um, articulated, 
And if we can just keep those three biblical principles in mind, not only does it help us with interacting with other people, it helps keep us in line, um, too, in terms of keeping our thinking in check. Yes, sir? I think the Trinity is true, but I don't think it's essential. You don't think it's essential? No. Okay. Okay, that's a that's a great point. But I think we have a very bad problem of thinking things that are true uh-huh. are all essential. Okay, good, good. That's that's actually a great point. So what Brian is is saying is that it's the Trinity is um, true and important, but but not essential. Uh, okay, and that's a great point. So, uh, and then the, then the. A support for that, there would be a couple hundred years, 300 years, yeah, about two, 300 years where um, there were people that wouldn't be saved because the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't revealed. So we're going to come back to that. Yes, yeah. That was my question. Okay. It's in the moment, and so it requires to really understand the Trinity. Right. For salvation. Okay. Great, great, great questions. And so... Right. Okay, that, and that's great. So l- let's clarify just a little bit. So if we go back to the first three centuries of, of the church, um, first of all, the doctrine of the Trinity was not um, articulated until um, 325 A.D., which would have been almost 300 years after uh, the crucifixion. Jesus was crucified around... Uh, 30 or 33 A.D., and then almost 300 years later, pardon me, the um, the uh, Nicene Creed occurred, you know, where it was the Trinity was articulated. But here's the thing: um, the articulation of that creed did not mean that that was the first time that people started thinking about the Trinity. You can go back to the New Testament, and people are worshiping God or worshiping Christ as God. Okay. So, um, they were, we're going to go through some passages here in a few minutes where that demonstrate the deity of Christ, because that's really the hinge. And that's actually the last slide that we've got here is the deity of Christ is the hinge on which the doctrine of the Trinity swings. Okay. And, as when I'm asking you, is the doctrine of the Trinity a bolt-on or is it essential? I'm not so much talking about the ability to articulate it, but there is a thing that Michael Pollyani talks about that's called tacit knowledge. Okay, tacit knowledge is something, and I hate to get this deep into it, but tacit knowledge is something that you know but you don't necessarily know that you know, or you know, but you can't necessarily articulate. And what uh, Pollyani talks about is in the first several hundred years of the church, there was this tacit understanding or knowledge of the Trinity where it wasn't articulated, but people were still worshiping Christ. Okay? And that's really the point, is the, the deity of Christ. Now, but... Let's rewind the clock about 10 minutes, right? When I said it's a bolt-on 
or it's not a bolt-on, that it's essential, but then nobody raised their hand and said that um, you were comfortable articulating it except for Tom, right? If we took that to an extreme, that would mean that Tom is the only person in this room that is saved. And nobody would claim that. In fact, it's probably the opposite. <laughs> so the, my, my point here is, is that Brian brings up a, a good point in terms of balancing things out. I'm not saying that we have to be able to articulate, defend, and you know the Nicene Creed or the three biblical points that um, we're going to be going through in order to be saved. But if you don't, there is an element of if you're not meeting the God of the Bible on Sunday morning, then who are you meeting? And I think the critical piece of that is understanding Christ as, as divine. Yes, sir? What's an example of a bolt-on? Wow, that's a great question. Um, thank you for that, Tom. Uh, let's see, a bolt-on. Um, <laughs> uh, the reason I, I say bolt-on is because, um, you know, honestly, and this actually, I'm stealing my own thunder because I asked this question here in a, a little bit. For most, in most churches, if they were suddenly non-Trinitarian, if they were suddenly Unitarian and denied the deity of Christ, then you wouldn't be able to tell it by sermons, Sunday school lessons, or worship music. Okay? Um, they're intrinsically, you know, they're not explicitly, or I shouldn't say explicitly, I should say um, vitally uh, Trinitarian, right? And so um, most, most, churches are effectively Unitarian, okay? And even if the people in the churches do, you know, do have Trinitarian um, beliefs, the day-to-day the, the -day operation of the church is not, not explicitly Trinitarian. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. So, um, so again, going back, good balance from Brian is that I'm not saying that if you can't articulate the Trinity that you're not saved. That would be ridiculous, right? Is that cool? Sort of? Okay. You, you keep saying you have to believe in Jesus, which of course is true. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, right. And we're... Okay. It's not essential for salvation. Okay. We'll take that offline. I mean, at some point we have to we have to get going here. So. All right. So in your experience, have your local bodies been vitally Trinitarian? And that gets into um, the question that um, uh, we talked about here a second ago. All right. Things to keep in mind. The Trinity is a biblical truth, even though it's not a biblical term. The important issue is not whether a particular term is found in the Bible, but whether the concept or idea is found there. A word is merely a representation of an idea. 
And if the idea is present, then there should be nothing wrong with coining a term in order to communicate it. So one of the things that occurs, one of the biggest attacks on, on Trinitarianism is that the Trinity is not used, is to be found nowhere in the Bible. And what we're saying here is that even though it's not a biblical term, it is a biblical concept. And so, um, uh, so there's nothing wrong with using a non-biblical term to describe a biblical, biblical truth. So words like Trinity are needed for the sake of theological precision. This is something we talked about last week, is that as um, the, church, the history of the church unfolded, um, the, the, the heretics were using uh, her, biblical language to promote heresy. And so what had to happen is as they were, um, as they were doing that, we had to, to bring in other language in order to explain what it is that the Bible is saying because the difference between the heretics and the orthodox were that um, um, the meaning of the terms, not so much the, uh, the terms themselves. And so God has progressively revealed himself over time. The Old Testament reveals types and shadows of the Trinity, while the New Testament reveals things more specifically. Okay? And this actually kind of goes back a little bit to what Brian was saying here a, a few minutes ago, is if you look at um, the, the faith, you know, redemption can be, or, or um, salvation can be summed up in... Uh, the faith, uh, the righteous shall live by faith. It goes back to Abraham. You know, Abraham believed God, and it was to counted it, it was counted to him as righteousness. And so, what happens is, if we believe what God has told us, as He progressively reveals more and more of Himself, if we believe what He says, then that is called faith, and that is what is counted as righteousness, and that is called salvation. So, um, so, you know, again, going back the first couple of centuries, the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't articulated. And so they weren't going to be, I'll say, held to, held to that standard. In studying the Trinity, we must strike a balance between his knowability and his incomprehensibility. We've talked about this before as well. We may know God truly, but we cannot know God comprehensibly. Okay. And in fact, um, would you even want to worship a God that you can comprehend? Would, would that God be, be worthy of worship? So there's going to be some elements of the Trinity that we cannot, cannot understand. In the Godhead, one of those is that in the Godhead, being and person are not, not the same thing. Okay? So... What is a being? Uh, it could be a singular human being. It right. could be a dog. It's, it's a... We, we, what we do in, in this world is we think of being in person as a one-to-one correspondence. Right? So Nikki is a person, Nikki is a being. Mallory is a person, Mallory is a being. Okay? But what happens is in the Godhead, those two things are distinct. God is one being, God is three persons. 
Now, if you think you understand that, we've got to ask more questions because I don't think anybody can really get their, their minds around that. Um, part of the problem is that the Trinity has no analogy. So we try to use things like um, three-leaf clovers, eggs, uh, the three states of water, different things like that in order to be analogies of the Trinity. But ultimately what happens is those things end up leading to ancient heresies that were denied in the first or second century. Okay. We also have to bear in mind, strange does not mean untrue. There's lots of really stuff weird in this world. Really stuff weird. There's lots of really weird stuff in this world <laughs> that is actually, that is true. Okay, so, um, and I, I hate to call the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity uh, weird, um, but it's something that it's outside of the norm. And so just because something is outside of the nor norm doesn't mean it's not, not true. And then also incomprehensible, incomprehensible is not true. There's lots of incomprehensible things that, um, that we understand that are, are, well, we don't understand, but they, they are, that we do take as true. All right, so three principles. Okay, anybody except Tom, you remember what they were? What was the first one? Uh, there you go. There is one guy. Okay. Um, the next one. Is that? Eternal. Uh, eternal is in it. God exists eternally as three distinct persons. Okay. And then what's the, the third one? Each person is fully and completely and eternally God. Okay? Those are the three. Now, what's that? It's up here. Uh, each person is fully, completely, and eternally God. Yeah. All right. So notice that we don't talk about essences and, you know, eternally begotten, you know, th th things of that nature. We don't go into all of that, right? These are three biblical truths that it's very, um, I hate to say easy or simple, but these are directly supported by, by Scripture. So um, let's try to do that. So the first one, many biblical passages in both Old and New Testaments declare that there's one God. Um, this one's kind of obvious, and we're running behind, so I'm going to go ahead and step forward real quick. Uh, but thus says the Lord, you know, Isaiah 44 says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, besides me there is no God. The fact that there's one God may also be inferred from passages that declare that God created everything. Um, so Genesis 2, um, Isaiah 44. Okay. Oh, I hope I didn't whip through that too quick. But anyway, you get the idea. There is one God. Principle number two. God exists eternally as three distinct persons. Most frequent non-covenantal name. Now, what would be God's covenantal name? Yahweh. Okay. So other than Yahweh, um, the most frequent name for God in the Old Testament is Elohim, which is the plural form of the Hebrew word for God. But when referring to the Lord, to Yahweh, it is always accompanied by a singular verb. Now let's talk about that for a second. Caleb said something about Genesis, you said... 
yeah, yeah. Exactly. So if we go back to the creation account, in fact, we can look at the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, the word for, that is translated God there is God's. It's Elohim. Um, literally, it means God's, plural. So if you're talking about Molech and Ashura doing something or being worshipped or whatever, then you would say the Elohim were doing something. Okay? Um, that same word is used to describe the one true God. However, the interesting thing is, every time it's used um, referring to Yahweh, to the one true God, it uses a singular verb rather than a plural verb. So if the first verse of the Bible, in, uh, in the beginning God uh, created the heavens and the earth, you know, created for both plural and for um, singular uh, created is the same word, right? So let's bring in the present tense. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. What it would say is, in the beginning, God create the heaven and the earth. Does that make sense? So what, what I'm getting at is, when Moses was writing it, his noun and his verb did not agree, his subject and his predicate did not agree with one another. Okay? And it's really an odd thing and the question is, why would he do that? Okay? Um, so it's, is the Trinity in the first, per, uh, first verse of the Bible? Well, not explicitly, but there is what seems to, there may be kind of a nod to it, um, even in the first verse of the Bible. All right. So the Lord uses the plural forms of pronouns where referring to himself. So this actually goes specifically to what Caleb, Caleb was talking about. So when God said, let us make man in his image, what could that us refer to? Throughout history, there's been three thoughts. You ever heard the, uh, it's called, one is called the, uh, was it the majestic we, or the, the majestic I, right? And it's the idea that, uh, okay, the queen or king or, or what it, whatever um, w will refer to themselves as we, okay? Um, so they'll say, we are pleased to meet your acquaintance when they mean I am pleased to meet your acquaintance. The problem is the Jews didn't write like that. So there's no other example um, unambiguous example of where that's actually used. The other one would be some people say that the us refers to um, angels. So let us make man in our image would say that we're created in the, in the image of God and angels. What do you think about that? Where are we? Yeah, <laughs> there you go. That kind of goes against fundamental Christian theology, right, of who man is. Man is created in the image of God not in the image of angels, okay? And the other option is that there is some idea of some kind of plurality within, within the Godhead, even in uh, the first chapter of the Bible. All right. There's some other examples. Um, I really like Isaiah 6, 8, 
says, whom shall I send, whom shall go for us? Right? Um, so you have a singular and you have a plural. The idea there is, is that God the Father um, is the one who sends, but he's going on behalf of, of the Godhead, the Trinitarian Godhead. In the angel of the Lord, we have a figure who seems on the one hand... Um, okay, we'll, we'll skip past the angel of the Lord. Um, so... I'm trying to think, hold on, do I want to go back or not? Nah, that's getting too much in the weeds. Okay. So, now, if we move to the New Testament, where the idea of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, is, is more explicit, um, we begin to see uh, not one singular passage, necessarily, but we begin to see uh, different passages that give us different parts of it. So, the first is the Father and the Son are distinct. In other words, the Father and the Son are not the same person. Okay? Um, John 17, of course, uh, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, Father, I desire that they also, the disciples whom you have given me, may be with me, uh, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Okay? Now, Oneness Pentecostals like T.D. Jakes will say that, uh, I, I think T.D. Jakes says this, um, this is a drama that's being acted out for the benefit of the disciples. What do you think about that? In other words, Jesus is really praying to himself. The one true God is pray, praying to himself because they believe in the deity of Christ, but they don't believe in, uh, they believe that the Father and the Son are the same person. Yes, ma'am. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mesh with it being a drama unless we're saying that at the very least Jesus is a deceiver. Okay, that's what I was looking for. If Jesus' prayer in John 17 is Jesus praying to himself, then how can we trust anything else that's in the Bible? It just doesn't make any sense. But when you talk to folks, this is the sort of thing that, they'll, that they'll, they will say. Yes, sir? Some other passages in the New Testament where Jesus is praying out loud and yeah. specifically saying, Father, I know you always hear me, but yeah. for the benefit of those around me, I'm right. praying out loud to you. Yeah. So right. that kind of debunks that theory. Absolutely. Very good. Very good. Uh, let's see. Um, so Hebrews 7 says, consequently, he is able to save the uttermost uh, of those, uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So an intercessor requires two parties, man, God, and then Jesus is the, is the intercessor. So the Father, the Son, and then mankind. Father and the Spirit are distinct. We'll skip through those. Son and the Spirit are distinct. And then, boom, we have all three are distinct. Um, 1 Peter 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are um, elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may great grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we have all three members of the Trinity shown in distinction here. John 14, Jesus is saying, I will ask the Father, he will give you another, that's the Spirit. And then going back to one of Caleb's passages, Matthew 28, uh, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, in the name, singular, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the name of each of them, but in one name. So you kind of see the threeness and the oneness all in, in one, one verse here. I think that's pretty cool. And the thing is, if the Son and the Holy Spirit are not, um, if they're not God, that means they're created beings. And so you're saying, baptize these people in the name of the Creator in two creations, which is just really weird. Each person is fully God. Uh, every tongue, con uh, Philippians 2 says, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here this is showing that, I mean, God, the Father is God. I think that one's pretty obvious. Um, Colossians 2, 9, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Um, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, which is talking about Jesus. And the Word was God, and the, uh, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there you see distinction and identity. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, so deity of the Son. Um, Yeah, okay. I really like this one. Um, Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue, tongue shall swear allegiance. Who is he talking about? To every knee shall bow. To whom? Well, in this passage, to God, to God himself. I, um, for I am God, and to me every knee shall bow, um, every tongue shall swear allegiance. But in Philippians 1, Mallory was anticipating it, says, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue shall confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what Paul is doing here is taking that Isaiah passage He's applying that to Jesus, and he's explicitly demonstrating the deity of Christ. Okay? Deity of the Spirit. Acts 5 says, but Peter said, um, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? 
Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Who did he lie to? Holy Spirit or to God? Right. Both. Because the Holy Spirit is, is God. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the, by the Holy Spirit. All right, so we go back to there is one God. God exists eternally as three distinct persons. Each person is fully, completely, and eternally God. You can remember those three things. Those three biblical principles keep you on track, okay? Keep you uh, away from, from heresy. And we're going to talk about some of those heresies next week. The hinge on which Trinitarian swing, Trinitarianism swings is the deity of Christ. Okay? Most of the time when you talk to people, um, there will be people that will attack, the, say, the personhood of the Holy Spirit, but they don't ever do that in isolation from the deity of Christ. Okay? They may attack all sorts of things, but they, they don't ever... Um, the deity of Christ is always included in these um, attacks on, on, on the Trinity. Cool. Uh, that guy's a really good-looking dude. Um, so I was going to uh, do kind of another one of those Muslim videos, but um, I think you probably got the point on, on, the, on the first one. So, cool. Any questions or thoughts, concerns? Sure. I'm not disagreeing. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. I don't understand. Can you help? Yeah, a absolutely. So this gets, um, well, we've already been kind of technical, so it gets a little bit technical. So think about, a lot of times I think about like the pantheists and stuff. Um, oh, actually, you know what? Better. Star Wars. Okay. Had to up over here. Star Wars. Think about the force. Okay, what is the force? Does the force have a personality? Right? And what I mean, is it, is it really, does it have a will? Does it have a, um, uh, does it have, you know, any kind of, I hate to say emotions because that gets really complicated. Um, does it have desires and goals and that sort of thing? Okay? And I think for the sake of the movie, it probably fakes it a little bit, Right? But if you think about forces and you think about impersonal forces, if in, um, like, again, Tom, Tom will talk to you about the, the meta-divine realm, which is um, uh, this pagan idea that there is this uh, fate um, that's this impersonal thing that, that, that doesn't have desires or goals or emotions or um, cannot love uh, does not really have a sense of justice, that sort of thing, um, that would be something that's impersonal, okay? Um, electricity is an impersonal force, okay? Uh, impersonal phenomenon. So the Jehovah's Witnesses will say that the Holy Spirit is impersonal, okay? That it's, it's like uh, electricity. When we say that the Holy Spirit is a person, 
it has it. He has um, desires, goals, um, a personality. He can love um, volition. It has uh, a consciousness, right? So that's what a, a person is. Now, everything that I'm saying here is you have if if you go back to the Bible, it has to be indirectly from the Bible because the Bible doesn't use these these terms. But um, that is what we mean by person. I'm not trying to have a technical definition of person, but that's kind of kind of what I mean by it. Is that, is that cool? Okay. Um, so what happens is the two big ones are um, either attacking that whether Jesus is um, uh, divine, and then the secondary one will be attacking the personhood of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is kind of a tool that's uh, used at the whim. And then the third one is that they're all actually one. We're going to talk about all those details next week. Uh, yes, sir. John 16, he says, you know, the Holy Spirit's going to come. He says, he will speak. You know, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but he will speak of what uh, he hears. He will speak and declare unto you the things of God. Right. So, I mean, he's indicating that it's a separate person. Right, absolutely, yeah, a a separate person. And then also we have to just kind of logically think, why would the creator of the universe entrust a created being with that? Could any created being be able to handle handle that sort of thing? Yes, ma'am. I was just going to say maybe it would be helpful to think about what we see in the Bible as each distinct um, operation maybe uh-huh. of those different persons. I mean, I think right. that verse is really helpful. Like, this is the operation of yeah. the Holy Spirit right. um, speaking individually to hearts yeah. in the will of God. Right. Separate from the way God interacts maybe with his creation and the way Jesus specifically interacts. Okay. Does that uh, uh, ab- just be helpful to flesh that out a little bit? Uh, absolutely. And you know what's funny is uh, this morning, the last three um, slides were Ephesians 1. And Ephesians 1, chapters. I'm sorry, verses, uh, was it about 3 through, I think, 14, get into being sealed by the Spirit, by the blood of Christ, elected by the Father. Ephesians 1 is so Trinitarian, and it, it does talk about those different roles and stuff. And two weeks from today, we're going to get kind of into that. Today is like kind of the most academic. It's th- This is the information. Next week, we'll talk a little bit more about... Um, some of the heresies, and then why, like, what impacts the, the, those heresies have, why they're a problem, and then in the third one, we'll kind of more practical, we'll talk about, um, you know, prayer and salvation, you know, different things like that. Did you have something else? No, I was going to say oh. that was a good, good point. Okay. Tying out, you know, some people like to say, yep. Jesus is subject to the Father, but does that diminish him in God? Right. I mean, I mean he's God too, so, yep. but he's voluntary submission. So a- absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and that's, uh, that's a great point that, you know, Jesus, if you go to Philippians 2, which I almost brought up here, Philippians 2 talks about um, Jesus emptying himself. Well, what, what did he do? What did he empty himself of? He didn't empty himself of, of deity. He em- emptied himself. He, he did not grasp onto, he did not hold onto his rights um, as as God when he was on, on earth. He was still fully God. Um, you can't separate those two things, but um, he he did not hold on to or grasp onto his his authority and his dignity as God. 
and he took on the role of a servant and, and, and was killed for it, was crucified. Okay. Um, so great. And we'll try to clean that up. Um, like I said, two, two weeks from now. Um, so before we close real quick, Brian makes, um, you know, good points in terms of, uh, the essentiality, what does it mean for a a doctrine to to be essential? And I think what I want to do next week is um, the first thing I want to do is try to clean that language up a little bit because I don't want to be too heavy-handed when when we talk about this sort of thing. Um, I had a friend of mine, and, and I only want essentials to be essentials, you know. Now, the Bible doesn't have a checklist of everything that's essential, um, but I actually had a friend of mine, a dear friend, who really got into studying Greek and Hebrew, and it kind of obsessed his, you know, his life was obsessed over it, and then what he um, told me one day was that he didn't think that anybody that didn't uh, love Jesus enough to learn Greek and Hebrew, he questioned their salvation, and I'm like, we need to have a conversation, (laughs) Um, so I definitely don't want to be that guy. But what we want to do is, is clean the language up a little bit and be a little more clear, I think, on, on what we mean by that. Yes, sir. Oh, I thought you were going to say something. Okay. Okay. Uh, cool. Uh, anybody else? No? Okay, cool. Caleb, do you mind? Thank you, sir.